Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Dr. Stephen Y. Park. He's the author of Sleep Interrupted. Uh, so we're going to talk about why so many people in the U.S. and around the world are uh, not sleeping well and are sick and tired because of it. So, Dr. Park, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, so tell me, what, um, what inspired you to even write the book in the first place and to work in the field you work in? So I was trained as a general otolaryngologist or ENT surgeon. And what I noticed was that many of these people, many of my patients who had chronic sinus or ear or throat problems, snored. And so I started ordering sleep tests on all these patients and had a really high number of patients uh, that were found to have sleep apnea, which is a condition where they stop breathing a lot at night. Mm. Um, and so I started ordering more sleep studies and found that uh, many of these chronic ENT problems, and not, not to mention many of these other health conditions like high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, memory problems, anxiety, depression, even digestive issues, were all directly or indirectly related to sleep and breathing problems. So that's when I got interested in sleep medicine and sleep apnea, um, and then everything's been just um, downhill since then. So, all right, so you'd have uh, ENT patients, and what are some of the top complaints they had that you saw correlated with sleep apnea or other sleep problems? You mentioned a few, but maybe the ENT-specific ones, maybe surprising. Okay. All right, so um, what I found was that people with chronic sinusitis, the people who uh, needed surgery after medical therapies fail, and they had about 80% of these people had, chronic, had, had a sleep apnea on the sleep test. So when I treated the sleep apnea, about half these patients didn't need surgery anymore. Um, and also, many oftentimes, the balance problems, dizziness, headaches, ear ringing, many of the symptoms I see on a daily basis, it got much, much better once you treated the sleep breathing problem much more effectively. Was it always because of apnea, or was it, could it also have been, like, can, can snoring cause these problems, or it needs to be an apnea? Okay, so let's define what an apnea is. Um, technically, on a sleep study, apnea means you stop breathing for 10 seconds or longer. And, and oftentimes, it's 20, 30, or 40 seconds at a time. And that would lead to lack oh, of wow. oxygen. Your oxygen levels drop significantly from like the high 90s to even 50% sometimes. So that, that's really stressful on your brain and your heart. But now that's the end extreme, but a lot of my patients didn't really have true apneas. What was happening was that they stopped breathing for one second or nine seconds and they keep waking up. So they don't have lack of oxygen, but interrupted sleep due to a breathing problem. Mm. And so that's it. Is that's there a, a, name, is there a name for that? Yeah, yeah it's called sub, upper, when you're sub 10 seconds. Yeah, it's called upper airway resistance syndrome or UARS. Um, this is described by Dr. Christian Gimeno. He's one of the uh, sleep medicine pioneers at Stanford University. And he wrote a paper published in 1993. He studied young, thin, healthy looking women, men and women who were tired and sick and just fatigued all the time, but didn't have sleep apnea officially on a sleep test. And what he did was to put in uh, esophageal pressure catheters, so these tiny little tubes, into the um, food pipe. And 
And when they measured the breathing, they found that there was a tremendous negative pressure as they're trying to breathe in against a closed throat. And they kept breathing in to lower and lower pressures, and they finally woke up. The brain waves woke up from deep to light sleep. But they never, it never lasted long enough to be called an apnea. Well, all right. So in your lab, when you get people tested, you're looking for these sub 10 seconds of you know, breathing stops. For a normal sleep lab, will they even look for that? Or they'll just say if it's below 10 seconds, they don't count it. Uh, the latter answer, they don't even look for it. Um, they only register the ones that are 10 seconds or longer. Now, there are different variations of apnea, something called a hypopnea, meaning that, um, so apnea means 100% obstructed breathing. Hypopnea means more than 30% obstructed breathing um, with your brain waves lighting up and your oxygen level dropping more than 4%. So very technical definitions. But if anything is under 10 seconds, it's not registered. However, it does get picked up indirectly as an arousal where the brain waves wake up from deep to light sleep. Mm, okay. well, and also I've never, I've never heard about this before. Yeah. It's interesting. Go ahead. Leg, yeah. So also sometimes your legs or arms or, can move around or you can clench your teeth. That's also a symptom of fragmented sleep. Oh, like grinding your teeth and restless leg could be symptoms of uh, interrupted sleep? Absolutely. There are pretty good studies showing that, for example, um, when they measure nasal breathing, brain waves, and jaw muscle movement, the first thing you see is a partial nasal breathing obstruction, so not apnea yet. And then you see the brain waves waking up from deep to light sleep. And then lastly in the sequence, the, the jaw muscles move. And when they applied pressure, positive pressure called a CPAP machine, uh, it went away. And they have similar findings with leg movements too. Um, yeah. So can you consider, is snoring itself a form of apnea or sleep interruption? Or do people still, um, can people snore but yet still not go into different stages of sleep or come out of a deep stage? Yeah, there are different gradations of snoring. So you can have simple light snoring. So for many people, you could be healthy, but if you have a cold, you snore a little bit. And that just means that the, uh, because of the swelling inside your throat, you have more vibration of a soft palate. But as you keep moving up the continuum, um, then you start to go into sleep apnea. But actually, they've shown that people who don't have sleep apnea who snore on a regular basis still have higher rates of stroke. And they've actually measured yeah. Hmm. Yeah, carotid artery thickness in people who snore, and that's thought to be due to acoustic trauma. Or the, the, the vibration just causes damage to the um, lining of the carotid artery. So how much, if you snore but you don't have an apnea, how much does it increase your risk for stroke or other uh, other conditions? Well, it's, it's not as bad as if you have sleep apnea. I, I, don't quote me on this, but I think it's like 1.5 times normal, whereas if you have sleep apnea, it's more like two to three times normal. So it's statistically significant, but it's, it's, it's not as bad as if you have true sleep apnea. Okay. Um, hmm. but, but if you snore for a long period of time, you, eventually you will probably develop sleep apnea because one of the theories as to why snoring can lead into sleep apnea is that the vibrations in your throat causes a, a deadening of the nerve endings, the protective nerve endings that cause you to wake up when you stop breathing. So it's thought to be a, a sensory neuropathy or the, a deadening of your protective reflexes because of the vibration, the acoustic trauma to your throat. Oh, that makes sense. Very interesting. Yeah, this is really great. I've never heard this from uh, anyone I've spoken to yet. So, um, so when you do a sleep study, what are you doing differently from other sleep study clinics? Like, uh, what are you looking for and to what level of detail are you observing someone? Okay. So just for disclosure, I don't have a sleep lab. I'm an ENT surgeon and sleep doctor, but I'm in an academic ENT practice. But I use pretty much every sleep lab in the tri metro New York tri-state area. 
So I don't have a preference. So a lot of people come from different areas to see me. And most of the sleep tests are standardized by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So um, I don't really have a preference for sleep labs, but um, honestly, I don't really um, give too much thought to what the numbers show. Um, the importance of having a sleep apnea diagnosis is that it allows you to get covered for sleep apnea treatment by the insurance companies. But many of my patients don't have sleep apnea and they're miserable because they stop breathing 20, 30 times an hour. So I go by what the patient presents with, the clinical history and the physical exam findings more than what the sleep study shows. Yeah, the reason I ask is that in the sleep, in the sleep lab, if it's instructed mm-hmm. and they capture the, the lower than 10 second breathing uh, pauses, do they have that data and they're just not looking at it or they don't even collect the data? They don't collect the data. Um, sometimes what you'll see is that the arousal index where the brain waves wake up, it's a little bit higher than usual. Um, and you, on, the, on the visual graph that you see on the sleep studies, you see it's very fragmented. The tossing and turning all night and the brain waves are waking up all the time. Um, but that doesn't get counted in the overall apnea hypopnea index at that score that's calculated to give you um, the AHI. And you need an AHI of above five to have a diagnosis of sleep apnea if you have other symptoms. If you have no symptoms, it's over 15. No, I understand they may not diagnose you, but can you instruct the sleep lab? I want to see data anytime someone stops breathing, even if it's for one second. I, I can't tell them to do that because they have to go by standard American Academy of Sleep Medicine scoring criteria. Okay. So how would you figure out, I guess you were starting to talk about that. How would you figure out if someone has um, not sleep apnea, but there is a threshold that's close to it and they're having other problems? What, what factors well, do you look at? Yeah. So the most important thing is a physical examination. The vast majority of people with this condition have very small oral cavities. The physical space inside the mouth is too small. And this is a very common modern phenomenon. Most modern Western people have very small mouths, and that leads to dental crowding, and that's why everybody needs braces now. So what can you do once you evaluate someone if you find they have, um, you know, sub-threshold apnea? I mean, the insurance won't cover it, or can you, I mean, what, what do they do? How do you treat them? Okay, so the first thing I do is many of these people will also have nasal congestion. And the reason for this is if your face doesn't develop fully, not only do you get crowded teeth, your nose gets crowded. So it compresses your septum, the nasal sidewalls are more narrow, your nostrils can cave in a lot easier, they become more flimsy. And so if, you, if your nose is stuffy, then you're going to open your mouth um, when you're sleeping or even when you're awake. And when you open your mouth, the tongue goes backwards. It doesn't really make you more open. Uh, it actually closes your airway when you open your mouth, believe it or not. And that, so that'll aggravate snoring and apneas at night. That'll cause them to wake up a lot more. And then you have this vicious cycle where every time you stop breathing, you forcefully vacuum up your normal stomach juices up into your throat, which causes more swelling and inflammation and mucus symptoms, which causes more obstructions. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. So first thing you have to do is start with the basic um, treatments. For example, uh, not eating late before you go to bed. That's the worst thing you can do if you have this condition because that, that forces your normal stomach juices up into your throat when you stop breathing. Well, Number when two, you say late, like um, what, how long before bed should you stop eating? Not, nothing earlier than three to four hours before bedtime. I know that's going to be challenging for some people, especially with children. It's, it's even more challenging. But eat, eat as early as early eat as early as possible before bedtime. Okay. All right. Keep going. About three to four hours. Okay. And what other factors that make can you treat it with? 
Yeah, so the other thing is to make sure that you're breathing really well through your nose. And many people will have nasal congestion. That's why they come to see me as an ENT surgeon um, after they tried all the allergy medications. But many people don't even know they have nasal congestion because they've had stuffy, stuffy nose all their lives. You think they can squeeze a little bit of air in and out, they think it's okay. And when I demonstrate using a nasal decongestion and lifting up the nostrils, they get this wow experience. And so the first thing to do is to optimize nasal breathing using medical therapy and even surgery if necessary, because you have to have an open nose for the other treatment options for soaring sleep apnea and UIRS to, to work much better. That includes all the gadgets, devices, orthodontics, or even surgery. Um, so opening your nose um, is the first step, not eating late, that's number two. Um, and also all the other sleep hygiene issues I'm sure everybody knows about, not um, sleeping seven, eight, seven to eight hours, um, not meeting electronic, on electronic screens before bedtime, so a whole list of other common things that you have to do before you go to sleep. So could one, you know, like um, a lot of people breathe through their mouth and may, they may never breathe through their nose if they're chronically yeah. obstructed. Yeah. Um, is one was one possibility to uh, take a uh, nasal decongestion right before bed? Would that help, you know, open up the that, nose, or is that not, yeah. not a good idea? That can, but those decongestants have side effects. So the sprays people get addicted to, like Afrin nasal spray, so you can only use that for two or three days at a time. And the pills, the decongestant pills, can raise your blood pressure because it's, it's a um, it constricts your blood vessels. That's why you breathe better. Um, so that's not the most ideal way of treating it. Now, some people get by with breathe right strips by keeping your nostrils from caving in. Some people use neti pot, nasal saline irrigation. So all these various options, these home remedies, do work to, cer- to certain degrees, but not consistently for most people. So you kind of have to move your way up that continuum, trying to conserve your things first, then try allergy medications, um, and then surgery as a last resort. But I would never rule out nasal surgery because I mean that's why most of my surgeries are nasal surgeries because that's what gets people to breathe through their nose, and the quality of life is much better. But the one caveat is that nasal surgery is, does not treat sleep apnea. A lot of people think that treating the, the, doing nasal surgery will cure the snoring with sleep apnea, and it does work about maybe five or ten percent of the time. But overall, it's been found not to work to treat sleep apnea. Why? Why do you think that is? Because when you have sleep apnea, you have other areas of obstruction, you have your nose, your soft palate, your tonsils, your tongue base, your epiglottis. There's many different levels in your throat that can obstruct simultaneously. Some have only one level, some have all three levels. So, okay. Um, what if someone doesn't have an apnea, but they have other issues that surgery may help them with? Could they use a CPAP machine, for instance, to fix that, or it yeah. doesn't cross over and help in that way? Yeah, you can always use a CPAP machine. Um, if you have sleep apnea, it should be covered by insurance. Um, the people who respond best to surgery are the ones who have very huge tonsils. So we do a lot of you know, tonsil surgery in kids in our field. And even adults with huge tonsils, they get the best response. It's not perfect, but it's, it's like 80% do much better uh, when they have huge tonsils. Unfortunately, most adults have very small tonsils. So taking out your tonsils is not going to help that much. Okay. Um, are there any topical things that you could apply to the nose? Or the inside of the nose to, uh, you know, to keep the nose open at night. I guess breathe, breathe red strips are the closest thing. It's yeah. not really topical, yeah. but it's applied locally. Right. There are also these internal dilator devices you can find online. Um, there's like springs or, or cones or gadgets that kind of spread your nostrils on the inside. Um, and I think, so nasal saline irrigation or neti pot irrigation or any kind of salt water spray that goes into your nose can help. 
but that you have to do multiple times throughout the day. It doesn't it, the effect wears off pretty quickly. Um, and some people, you know, they use these homeopathic uh, natural medication to help sometimes. But that the problem with these medications is that it, it, it may diminish inflammation, but it doesn't change the basic structure of your nose. Because like I said before, if your jaws are narrow, um, the sidewalls of your nose is going to be more narrow. And you're going to have a deviated septum because it buckles because it doesn't, as it grows down, it just buckles because the heart pattern doesn't drop during development. So structurally, the bony structure-wise, medications do nothing. So if you have a little bit of inflammation due to cold or allergies, medicines do help temporarily. Well, nose surgery sounds a bit scary and invasive. So how would you characterize it? How invasive is it? What's the recovery time? Is it really a major surgery or no? Well, it's all relative. Um, compared to the surgeries I do, it's a, it's a simplest operation that I do. Um, but obviously, any kind of surgery is big surgery for, for any, anyone new to surgery. But um, typically, it's, it's, um, it's, it's first, first of all, it's, it's ambulatory surgery. You go on the same day. Uh, for most of these procedures, unless you're doing rhinoplasty, there's nothing on the outside. Uh, everything's done internally with the septum and the, and the turbinates, which are these wings on the sidewalls of your nostrils. Um, sometimes you have to stiffen the nostrils, too. That, that's a kind of a different operation, but everyone has different needs. Uh, but for the most part, um, I don't use any nasal packings. Everything is sewn in with the dissolvable sutures. You're breathing right away after the surgery. No black and blue on the outside or swelling. And most people go back to work after a couple of days. Um, and also, the important thing about nasal surgery is that, it, uh, like I said, it allows people to use other gadgets better. So, for example, there was a study looking at people who had nasal congestion and couldn't tolerate CPAP. And overall, they used the CPAP machine about 30 minutes per night. But after nasal surgery, it went up to five and a half hours. That's amazing. So they essentially were able to sleep with a CPAP after the nasal surgery. Right, right. Now, it doesn't help everyone use CPAP, but it, it, it helps a significant amount. And then if that doesn't work, then you go to the next steps. Um, but or try something different. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of a the sequence of algorithm that, that I follow. Uh, so from conservative lifestyle issues to um, dietary lifestyle modifications, gadgets, devices, medications, and then surgery. And not usually to cure the problem, but to, as an adjunctive procedure, to make the gadgets and medications work better. Why would um, improving nasal breathing help with the CPAP getting used to it or not? Because there's less resistance, so the pressure can be lower and it's much more comfortable. And if you keep your mouth closed, you get less leaks when you use the machine. Okay, good. I didn't know that. Interesting. What about um, sleep position? Is that, does that help any of this if you sleep on your sides versus on your back? Yeah, that's a really important uh, topic. So people always ask me, what's the best sleep position? And I tell them, whatever you're most comfortable sleeping in. So everyone has a preferred sleep position. Like statistically, I'm guessing you probably don't sleep on your back, right? I don't. I'm heavier. Um, I yeah. lost weight, but um, you know, I'm one of those deviated septum people and mouth right. breathers, as they call them. So I, when, yeah. when I sleep on my back, I feel like, <laughs> I, you know, I used to snore a lot worse. My wife says I don't snore much now. It's gotten a lot quieter yep. since I lost weight, but I feel much yep. more comfortable on my sides. Absolutely. That makes total sense. But most people, like I said, most modern humans these days have dental crowding, deviated septums, and if the mouth is smaller, what happens is that on your back, the tongue falls back relatively more due to gravity. So whenever you go into deep sleep, your muscles relax and you stop breathing. So you just wake up really quickly, turn to your side. So it's just much more comfortable sleeping on your side. Now, problems happen when, let's say you get injured or undergo an operation and you're forced to sleep on your back. 
that's when people get into trouble. They don't sleep at all, or they have to sleep upright and upright with lots of pillows or an inclined bed. Um, or especially in a hospital setting, let's say that you undergo a hip operation, you can't sleep on your um, stomach anymore. Right, yeah. And yeah. you're on your back, and, and you're giving narcotics, which suppresses your, your respiratory drive. So that's why bad things happen in the hospital. Um, would it help to sleep on a wedge, you know, to sleep elevated? Or does that do other things that, to you that are not good? All these things, that, all these gadgets that you hear about, they, they work to various degrees. Um, so the wedges, that takes away the effect of gravity to some degree. And that's why some people can only sleep in the recliner. Um, but you have to experiment to see what works for you. And for some people, sleeping on an incline in a wedge or a recliner doesn't help at all. They have to sleep on their stomach. I've had some some people who were went as far as to buy a massage table with a hole in the table to sleep on their mm. stomach the face down. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. Well so far it's been really interesting. A lot of the things you've said I've I haven't heard before. Um what other misconceptions or things that you've observed that you haven't seen anyone else talk about? We've gone through a lot of them, but anything else? Well, along those lines, um, you know, when they say when people talk about sleep apnea, they think that you have to be this overweight, heavy set, middle aged, storing man to have sleep apnea with a big neck. But yes, that that may be true, and even then, doctors don't really pick it up that much. But you can. My point is that you can be a young, thin woman that doesn't snore. We're talking about men too, and and still have sleep apnea. But those people. So what are, what are, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, those people what will are, never get sleep apnea. They'll never know they haven't. Um, is sleep apnea ever quiet? You know, if you have a partner in the bed, uh-huh. can you have apnea and they wouldn't even know because you wouldn't make noise? Or do you always hear right. the gasping and snoring with it? Yeah, so you can just stop breathing quietly and start breathing again. Just interrupted breathing, interrupted sleep. So if, you know, if you're not breathing, you're not snoring, right? Right, that's true. I just didn't know if it could be quiet or if it's always, you know, this loud snoring and gasping, you know, yeah, apnea. That's, that's the traditional apnea, what I think of. Right, and that is true. I mean, if you have that, you have to get that checked out. But you can you can stop breathing significantly for long periods of time and not gasp and choke or snore. Okay, so even if you're thin and young and man or woman, and even yeah. if you have a partner in the bed that says, I don't hear anything or experience anything, it still is possible you could have apnea. Well, apnea in a very generic sense, not apnea like a technical apnea, but interrupted breathing during sleep. Okay, right, like you said, sub- uh, 10 second uh, right. times of, of stopping but, breathing. But, yeah, but even partial, like five second obstruction, not complete. Okay. Um, so can you just talk briefly about what does sleep apnea do to you? And then what is this, um, I forget the term you used, but you know, just the, the interruptions in breathing, what can that do to you? Okay. So um, physiologically, if, if you stop breathing multiple times at night, it, it creates a a physiologic stress response, meaning that your body thinks it's under attack all the time. So imagine you're at the zoo and a tiger escapes and it's running towards you. I mean, your first reaction would be to run, right? Or some people would fight. But well, when you're running, run, yeah. Please run. It's that fight or flight response. So when you're running from a tiger, the last thing you want to do is to digest or reproduce. Would you agree? Right. That's all you're focused on is your whole body <laughs> right. geared towards getting away from it. Yeah. Right. But if that's happening all the time when you're sleeping, your body, even during the daytime, you're, you're going to be in this state of fight or flight. And so it's going to mobilize all your energy and resources and blood flow away from your, your uh, reproductive organs, your digestive system, your skin, your hands, your feet, certain parts of your brain get diverted away so that you can run or fight. So that's why you're in a state of stress physiologically, so hormonally, metabolically, neurologically, 
you're in the state of chronic low-grade stress, so you, you, your body just overreacts to everything. So that creates this low-grade um, physiologic stress response that causes your, the inflammatory markers, all your in the blood test, it goes up. It suppresses your, your hormone levels, your, your thyroid hormone levels, your reproductive hormones, your stress hormones go up. Um, it just wrecks havoc on your body in, in, every, in every way. Now, if it happens on a chronic long-term basis, now let's say you go into sleep apnea, now you start to have um, higher risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, heart attack, stroke, cancer, car accidents, and there are other associations with headaches, um, digestive issues, um, skin conditions, uh, seizures, ADHD, um, you know, other psychological problems, depression, uh, fertility issues. <laughs> it, it just it, it affects every dementia too. So uh, w- you gave an acronym a little while back. I think it was UVAS. Can you U- say what that is again? Yeah, UARS or U Upper yeah. Airway Resistance Syndrome. Okay, so that's what you're or maybe not you personally, but that's what, uh, when someone stops breathing or has reduced breathing that uh, wakes them from sleep, and it may be less than the classical 10 seconds for apnea, that's what right. uh, the syndrome is, right? Right. Okay, so we talked about what apnea can do. It can do a whole host of horrible things. How about this syndrome? Is it How bad is it in comparison? Is it close to being as bad? Well, people feel just as bad. <laughs> Uh, so at this point, they're not going to have the heart disease. That, that comes later. And in fact, most people with the URS later on after middle age, get, they go into sleep apnea, especially as they gain weight. And I see this quite often in, in women after menopause. So when they're younger, in their 20s, they're really skinny. Um, they can't gain weight if they tried. They have cold hands, cold feet, low blood pressure, dizzy, lightheaded, have depression or anxiety, have digestive issues, you know, migraines, headaches, TMJ, all this, the, the general conglomeration of symptoms that they have, intense chronic fatigue. Um, and so that's the main symptom is that they don't fall asleep. They're kind of wired all the time, but they're dead tired. You know, it's interesting. All those, uh, all those symptoms you just mentioned, even when a woman is young, mm-hmm. is there a name for that cluster of symptoms? Because it's, you know, it, that's a lot of different symptoms to go together. That sounds like a very particular yeah. type of person. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So um, this syndrome, um, it, it's been, it keeps changing names every couple of centuries. Um, I forget the name that they used in, in the early 1900s. Um, they described it to these uh, neurotic, nervous women that, that slept all day long. They were tired and fatigued. Um, it was it's kind of, you know, they stereotyped these kind of women, but we, I see it in men too. They're just really, really tired and fatigued. They can sleep you know, 14 hours and not feel refreshed. You know, they're, they're depressed. They can't function. Um, now, some of these people, not all, but some of these will, have, will be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. So these, these syndromes meaning, mean that we don't, there's a constellation of symptoms where we, know, we have no idea why, what, why it's happening. Um, and then some, some people but, will but get... Here's what I'm yeah. getting at, though. You, you've, at first, you were describing a young woman, and you gave all these symptoms. Is, is that whole cluster of symptoms happening when a person is young, and then when they're older, middle-aged, or they go through menopause, now all of a sudden they'll tend to show up with this uh, this other syndrome, the U U A R S syndrome. Oh no! Or does no, it happen no. all when they're older? Okay, so typically when you're younger, you're going to have U I R S. When you're when you're younger, um, and but some young people have sleep apnea for obvious reasons. Uh, but most of the patients I see, most of the people that dentists see in their practices 
have this condition because they have these tiny mouths. They have dental crowding. Uh, they've had braces. They've had some. A lot of times they've had dental extractions, which makes their mouth smaller. And so, um, yeah, when they're younger, they tend to have these issues. But as you get older, a certain proportion of these people will go into sleep apnea, especially if they gain weight. But some people will stay like this until they die. Right. So if someone, even if someone doesn't have sleep apnea, is really the take-home message here. They still may have UARS, which may yeah. leave them feeling exhausted no matter how much they sleep. And still cause them all kinds of problems. Absolutely. Okay, that's what I well, wanted me, to get at. Okay. Yeah, let me also mention the two things that I'm seeing these days that it's totally radically changed the way I practice medicine and surgery. So a couple of years ago, I started doing something called drug-induced sleep endoscopy. This is a technique where, let's say I'm in the operating room doing a nasal operation, or you can do this by itself. Um, before we do the operation, we give the patient some sedation um, through an IV, like a propofol, um, like colonoscopy. And we put them to deep sleep, but they're still breathing spontaneously. And we take a look with a fiber optic camera in the nose, down the throat, and you see what's happening when they're breathing during sleep. And so oftentimes, the typical sleep apnea patient will collapse behind the soft palate. You see the vibrations when they're snoring, then it collapses inwards. Sometimes you have that plus tongue base collapse. So those are more typical findings in sleep apnea patients. But now what I'm also seeing is that once in a while, I see the endoscopic procedure. I just lost you. So, you, so they're, they're doing this endoscopic procedure, and what are they noticing? Let's start from there. All right. So, so most often for CPI patients, you see that the soft palate, the area behind the soft palate, caves in as they breathe in, interspersed by storing, up, storing vibrations of the soft palate. And on other times, you also see the tongue base collapsing in as they breathe in. So that's pretty typical for sleep apnea. But more recently, what I'm seeing is that the two structures that cave in like a flap or a valve. So, for example, there's a, there's a structure called the epiglottis, which is this cartilaginous hood on top of your voice box behind your tongue. And typically, it, it kind of sits forward, hugging the tongue base. And when you swallow, the tongue pushes it up against the, the voice box and to kind of protect the airway. But sometimes what happens is that the epiglottis flops back like a valve when you breathe in. It's like a suction cup. And so that'll obstruct your breathing and you wake up really quickly. And, and another process is where the soft palate backs up into the nose like a valve when you breathe out through your nose. So these people stop breathing suddenly as they breathe out through the nose and leak air out through the mouth, like with a puff. Oh, okay. So these people can't tolerate CPAP because they can't, so they can't either breathe in or they can't breathe out physically. Gotcha. So what do, you know, the, the whole world can't come see you, <clears throat> literally, even though that might be nice. So what do, what do people do um, to get help if they suspect they have a problem or if they're just tired all the time or they have some of these various issues that you're talking about? I think the first thing, the simplest thing to do is to see a sleep doctor to see whether or not you have sleep apnea and just go through the conventional treatment routes for sleep apnea. And that, that will get a significant number of people who are sick and tired. But what about your book? Can they read your book and then bring oh, oh, sure. that, that to the that, sleep that, doctor that, that, as well? That's a great idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, but after after going through the standard sleep study, so this is for people who have, have gone through the sleep study and are told you don't have sleep apnea. Um, but I, I think, so a lot of my, you're right, a lot of my patients have brought their sleep doctors in my book and it, it's gotten mixed, mixed reviews. Um, a lot of doctors, you know, don't, they don't want to be bothered having to read another book. And, you know, it's just another book you have to read. Um, and honestly, yeah, there's a mixed picture amongst my professional colleagues in terms of these concepts. Um, it's, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say a little bit, it's, a, it's very out of the box thinking. 
Um, but I'm not the only one thinking this. There are lots of other similar colleagues like myself that, that I appreciate this, but it's not still, it's not part of the mainstream sleep medicine or ENT. Well, what does someone do if they go, they have a sleep doctor, they get a sleep study, they're told, no, you don't have apnea. The person is still mm-hmm. tired all the time mm-hmm. and they can't see you. What do they do? How do they get the treatment? Right. So oftentimes they'll go through the rigor with the testing. So they get tested for Lyme disease, uh, they check the thyroid levels, check the hormone levels, uh, check the vitamin, vitamin levels. Everything is fine. Or if it's low, they get treated for it, but they don't feel they don't feel much better. So um, there's, there's a couple of different ways um, you can take care of this. One is um, go to an ENT. If, if your nose is stuffy, get that taken care of by an ENT, um, whether with medicines or surgery. Um, and more and more ENTs are doing sleep endoscopy these days um, during surgery, but that's, it's not that common. Another way of taking care of this is to see a, a dentist. A lot of more dentists are now aware of these airway issues, and they have lots of um, orthodontic um, options available to make your mouth bigger, not just to straighten your teeth. Um, but you have to do well, how would you, how would, Yeah, how would someone tell them if they have UARS, though? How would they figure that out? Um, well, honestly, most people find out just from reading my book or my, my articles on the, on the website. Um, and they say, that's, that's me. That's me exactly. Um, and so... And, you know, it's 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 gonna be um you know uncomfortable you know taking these articles to your doctor or your dentist, um but you have to kind of you know put your foot down and advocate for yourself. Okay, so that yeah, I just wanted to give people a path to uh, to figuring this out. So, okay, so what are what are some resources for people? They should get your book. You know, if you can, just state the name of the book again, and it's probably available on Amazon and, sure. and other booksellers, yeah. right? So what's the name? Yeah, it's called Sleep Interrupted, Sleep Comma Interrupted. It's on Amazon. Okay. And my right, website, my website has lots of good resources at drsevenpark.com. D-O-C-T-O-R-S-C-E-V-E-N park.com. Okay. All right. Those are two great resources. All right. So, um, you know, we're going to wrap up in a minute. What, uh, any other advice or things that you want to address, uh, any misconceptions people have that we haven't talked about, or again, any advice you have for people that are suffering? So it just, it just goes back to that, um, misconception that you have to be this stereotypically overweight man to have sleep apnea. Um, but what I'm seeing now is that most, especially younger people, have these more triangular faces and recessed jaws. If, if you think about what people looked like even 50 years ago, their faces are very different. Right? If you remember those movie stars in the 1940s and 50s, they, they, the attractive movie stars had these square mouth, square jaws, wide jaws, and well, uh, well-defined cheekbones, and then relatively nice smiles. But now all the younger celebrities, even just everyday people, have these more triangular faces and more dental crowding, and almost everyone needs braces mm. now. So this is this is a it's a, it's a really sad state of, 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 of our state right now. Um, I mean, that that the reason why this is happening that's that's a whole other discussion in itself. I talk about this in my book in a little bit, but I have a lot more developed ideas now that I'm I'm I'm, I'm working on on writing about. All right. Well, this is great. I appreciate you coming, Dr. Park. You, you know, you've gone and looked deeper and more carefully at uh, you know sleep issues than anyone I've heard. So I, I definitely encourage listeners if they're having issues to check out your book and your website. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was truly my pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast. Post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, 
more.